This is the second of uh, three sermons on this particular passage. Um, since it was a very complex kind of passage, and I didn't want to short shrift anybody or anything as we kind of talk about this. Um, I'll warn you, when I go to GA, I do not sleep very much. And this morning, I was up at four, so I could bring my family to the airport. So there's no telling what might come out of my mouth. So pray for mercy for me and for you. All right, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's pray. (coughs) Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of Your Holy Word, grant to all of us that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs may hear and apprehend Your Holy Word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand Your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to Your praise, glory, and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned, General Assembly. And uh, one of the things that happens at General Assembly, just as at our Presbytery meetings, is that at times we deal with controversial issues. That uh, In this case, there was a study report that for some reason, which is still um, mystifying to me, was controversial. There are questions about difficult passages of Scripture, and how we understand those passages of Scripture have consequences on how we live. This text, which Martin Luther called one of the most obscure passages in the Scriptures, is a tough passage. I'm going to bring up a couple of different uh, viewpoints on how to understand this, but understand this. How we understand this passage greatly affects, I think, how we live in the present. It is not simply for some uh, theoretical knowledge. It's not just for the sake of speculation. It's not for intellectual curiosity. But Peter wrote this so that they, the original audience, would have hope and comfort in the midst of their circumstances. And therefore, we should be able to have hope and comfort in the midst of similar circumstances. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus triumphant, 
because he's been raised from the dead, preaches to the persecuting with power. And hopefully all of that sentence will make sense by the time I am done. Before we can get into the uh, what this all means and the import of it all, there are three key questions that have to be asked and answered in the midst of all of this. And the first of these three questions is, when we get to verse 19, <coughs> who is Peter talking about? The second is, when this all happened? And the third is, what in the world is he talking about? Or what was the message that he preached? It's probably a better way of putting it. Let's get to the first of these three things. There are three main options as to whom Peter is referring to. When he says, to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Typically, the three groups of people that have been listed are Old Testament saints, the wicked who lived in the day of Noah, and fallen angels. Okay? Now, let's say a couple of brief words before we kind of move to the next point, is that in the sense, uh, Old Testament saints in the New Testament references are often disconnected from their sin. For instance, we read a little bit from Hebrews chapter 11, and even when, we, when Paul deals with, say, Abraham and Romans, the focus is on their faith and their obedience and not their disobedience. Although the Old Testament does make that clear that they were at times very disobedient. And so the notion of Old Testament saints uh, being in, in view here really seems to me to be disconnected from how the New Testament treats the Old Testament saints. There's a sense in which this would be a unique way of looking at them. <coughs> because they are said to be in prison. We know from Jude, as well as Second Peter chapter 2, that the fallen angels are currently being held for judgment. Part of what is going on, well, Part of how some people understand all of that is um, if we go back to Genesis chapter 6 and you see the conflict that emerges between the sons of God and the sons of men, some have understood the sons of God to be referring to angels and a rather strange thing that is reminiscent of a city of angels in which Nicolas Cage falls for the lovely Meg Ryan who was a human and I can understand that from that period in her life. Um, I had a thing for Meg Ryan for a long time. Um, <clears throat> don't tell Amy. Um, I don't think she knows that yet. Um, but she'll probably learn if she listens to this. And so they think that the angels being represented, you know, the sons of God fell for the daughters of men and therefore uh, in a strange sort of way intermarried with them and produced the giants in the land. I do not hold to that understanding of Genesis uh, 6. So, uh, But I'm just giving you context for how some people tend to view this. <coughs> and it would be thought that those particular fallen angels would be the ones uh, who would be in prison. Okay? 
The third option is the people. The people who lived during the day of Noah, who, as we saw from the reading of, of, of uh, Genesis 6, were quite disobedient. Uh, they were filled with sins of violence and of a sexual nature, as we see from the early times before the flood. Hey, it sounds sort of like the day of the early church, and hey, that sounds a little bit like today in many parts of the country, of the world. So, who? We're not sure yet. What? What is going on here? Or sorry, when is my question. Uh, when? We see that Jesus was, who, though he, he was, he suffered and died in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit. So there's a conflict, uh, sorry, not, contrast between his death in the flesh and his life in the spirit, in which, the rest of the sentence continues, some have preferred to translate that not by in the spirit, but made alive by the spirit. So we're not sure exactly which is the best way of understanding that particular little preposition. But we see a contact point again with uh, what we read last week in 1 Timothy 3, the great mystery of salvation with the reality that he was vindicated by the Spirit after he was manifested in the flesh. Martin Luther recognizes or uh, uh, advocates for the view that Jesus was raised in the realm of the Spirit after he had suffered in the realm of of the flesh. And so this is more, not about the means of his resurrection, which is kind of how I take it, uh, but rather the, the sphere of existence that Jesus enjoyed after his resurrection. When this happened can therefore be kind of laid out to, obviously, after his death and before his resurrection, there are some people who kind of put it within that three-day window. Um, that doesn't quite make sense because he was raised by the Spirit? Ah, don't know. Um, secondly, it would be after his resurrection. And thirdly, during the days of Noah. What's clear here, though, he says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so, my understanding of the text, putting this in context, would seem to lean towards the days of Noah. But stop. Wait for a second. Lest we get too uh, intellectual and casual about all of this, let us remember this focus. Let's behold the incredible patience of God with the sinners that were there during Noah's day. That <coughs> the the flood did not come unexpectedly, but rather the flood came after years and years of Noah building his ark and making known the righteousness of God. We see here the, these two words: God's patient or patiently, God who patiently waited in the days of Noah. Our God is one who is long-suffering and who is patient even with sinners. And so, what was preached to these souls who were in prison? Peter doesn't mention that. 
it sort of depends on the answers uh, above uh, whether or not it's the gospel or the message of defeat. You see, if it's to fallen angels, there's no salvation for fallen angels. They have no mediator. There is no additional God the Son who takes on the nature of angels in order to die for angels and redeem them. There is only doom for angels. And whether or not the Son of God comes to to save men doesn't matter with respect to the angels. They're condemned. If it's being preached to imprisoned souls, we recognize from places like Hebrews 9-7, there's no second chance. They've lived. They've died. They're awaiting judgment. Uh, There's no uh, get-out-of-jail-free card that is seen in Scripture. But the message that some think it would be would be basically, I have conquered. Are you lost yet? (laughs) Okay, I'm about to hopefully simplify this a lot. There's two main views. One of which is really uh, dependent on first Enoch. And so the theory goes like this. Um, we know Peter un- had access to first Enoch. And therefore, people read first Enoch into what Peter is saying here and arrive at what I think is a very strange view. Now, before you, we, we, we mention what that is, it's probably helpful if you know what in the world first Enoch is. Okay? First Enoch is supposed to be about Enoch. You know, the Old Testament saint that we, we had before the flood and who was mentioned in the passage we read in Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch who walked with God and then was no more, that Enoch. Okay? It's supposedly about Enoch's visionary travels or, or post-rapture travels. Okay? And so in a sense it's, uh, an intertestamental version of 90 minutes in heaven. Okay? Something like that. It's sort of a, uh, intertestamental version of the shack. It's sort of fanciful and it makes things up from my perspective. Enoch didn't write it, but some people wrote it about what they think Enoch experienced. It's not part of the scriptures. It's not authoritative. Okay? But one of the things that happens there is that in that book is that Enoch goes to the place where the dead are imprisoned, awaiting judgment, and he gives a message of judgment to them. So, people like Origen, who is generally not to be trusted in my book, uh, but also Martin Luther, have uh, taken a view that Jesus, after his resurrection or after his death, it's both kind of fit within this view, uh, descends to where the, these people are imprisoned and preaches to them. Mostly it's viewed as a, the message of judgment. I have triumphed. You have lost. Judgment is coming. This is a view that is uh, gaining uh, popularity among uh, more modern 
commentators today. Okay? There's an element of truth in it, which is part of what makes it attractive. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2, we see that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Okay? (coughs) And so, there's this sort of message or this view of Jesus who has been raised coming and declaring His triumph to the people who disobeyed long ago but now are imprisoned for it. The second view which I think is a much better view, is dependent not on Enoch, but is dependent on the rest of First Peter. Now there, I might say, is an interesting sort of thought that we might actually try to find and seek the understanding of what Peter's saying from the context of what Peter says already around it. And we know from around it, we've already talked about this in in an earlier sermon, but it was the Spirit of Christ who was at work within the prophets to make known the future sufferings of Jesus. And so the Spirit of Christ did not suddenly appear, but was at work amongst God's people for the blessing of God's people, for the preparation of God's people, and the coming of Messiah. And so I understand this is something similar going on. That the Spirit of Christ, who raised Christ from the dead, is the same one through whom Jesus Himself, through Noah, preached to the people of Noah's day. Okay? So you got, let's, let's put all those things together. Who is being preached to? The disobedient sinners of Noah's day. When are they being preached to? During Noah's day. What is being said to them? the message of the gospel and of justice because Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so while he's building this ark, there are people that kind of come up and say, hey man, what's going on? Building an ark. Why? Because God's going to flood the world. Flood the world? Why? Because you people are wicked. And He's just. And He's not going to put up with it forever. Repent. There's room in the boat. We might have to hang out with the elephants. I'm not sure. But there's room in the boat. That's what I think was going on. Based on what we see around this text, and this makes, I think, perfect sense of the text for the people of Peter's day. And so the point is that the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, see His power is the, the the Spirit by which the Gospel is made known. So, not just the Spirit who raised Jesus, but the Spirit who gave the Scriptures is the one who raised Jesus from the dead and by whom the Gospel is preached. So, let's get away from the theoretical. Let's get to the implications of all of this. Christ proclaims His Gospel through us by the Spirit. Noah, surrounded by unrighteous men, as I mentioned. Noah, surrounded by unrighteous men who also persecuted him while he was building the ark. Surely many of them made light of him. A flood, huh? Never seen one of those before, huh? 
What's a flood in the, anyway? What's a rainstorm anyway? What God is going to judge us? Don't you see? There, there's no judgment. We're going on just as we have for hundreds of years doing the same things. <laughs> there will be no judgment, you crazy man. Noah, preacher of righteousness, by the power of the Spirit, told them to repent or perish. We see again, don't want to overlook this, I want to repeat this because I think this is so important. We see God's great patience on display as, as Noah simultaneously built the ark. Okay, remember, he's got no modern technology. Okay? He doesn't have chainsaws and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's a little more labor intensive. Um, but he's simultaneously building the ark and bearing witness. Think about that for a second. The people of Peter's day were called to fulfill their vocation and simultaneously bear witness. You and I are called to, at the same time, fulfill the requirements of our vocation and faithfully bear witness. You you are not called to quit your job to bear witness unless you're called to be a missionary or a pastor and you aren't one yet. But building the ark didn't get in the way of his bearing witness. In fact, it produced the circumstances in which he could bear witness. So we see God's great deliverance of Noah as is revealed in this text because he kept, and actually says seven souls, sorry, eight souls, Noah and seven others, his wife, his sons, and their wives, through the flood. Now, if you can remember this for when I get back from vacation, how many do you know believed? Noah. Noah is the only one of whom it is said in the Scriptures that he was righteous, that he found favor in the eyes of God. And yet God mercifully delivered from this earthly judgment not just him, but seven members of his family with him. I think that's a little significant when we recognize that Peter then jumps to the reality of baptism with his next breath. I'll get back to that in five Sundays. Okay? But I thought I'd toss it out there just in case I forget. I'm hoping to get there in five Sundays. Okay? Let's remember. Peter is writing 
to people who are experiencing persecution because they're doing good. He has previously, as we've seen, called them to set Christ apart as Lord within their hearts and to make a defense when they're asked when they're, while they're being persecuted. And so the ministry of Noah becomes another example, just as the example of Jesus, for them. So that that original audience was intended to, just as the disciples on the day of Pentecost, waiting for the Spirit to come and to empower them to be God's witnesses to Jesus. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 1. Wait here. The Spirit will come upon you and then you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the people to whom... Peter is writing because he's one of those guys that the Spirit came upon and he's been bearing witness. Peter is writing to people who are in the ends of the earth and basically he's saying to them, the same Spirit will be with you just as it was with Noah so that you can bear witness to Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. Have no fear. His audience was surrounded by unrighteous people who were slandering them. Let's go back for a moment. I've mentioned Richard Wormbrand before, the pastor in Romania. He grew up an atheist. He was Jewish, but grew up an atheist there. Was converted by a man in another village during World War II. uh, Ministered to... Russian soldiers who were prisoners of war uh, with the gospel. And then when the Allies won and they divvied up who got what, Romania, unfortunately, got given to the Soviets. And so now those Russians are in control and those Russians are atheists and those Russians don't like pastors like him. And he ends up in prison two separate times for a total of, I believe it was 25 years. The number just escaped me. But not just him, also his wife. And so he, he tells about his, one of his sons had, uh, because both father and mother were in prison, okay, think of this 14 year olds. Okay, think of this Maximus. Imagine for a moment that your mother and father are in prison for Jesus Christ and you have to take care of the rest of the family. That's a lot to ask of a 14 year old you think you might become bitter about God in that moment. But he visited his mother in prison and realized what a Savior. Anyone who was worth suffering that for certainly had to be a great Savior. And so it was actually visiting his mother in prison that led to his own conversion and future suffering for Jesus. These people to whom Peter wrote were to be Christ's witnesses, but they, like I think us, would tend to be fearful. And so they needed God's powerful Spirit, the the Spirit that's able to raise people from the dead, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. They have that Spirit to empower them for Gospel ministry. And so us... In our faithless place, we are to bear witness in the power of that very same Spirit to the faithless. Because we, just like in the days of Noah, witness the patient waiting of God. 
about his own conversion, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that he received mercy that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So God's patience is continually being revealed. His mercy is continually being revealed. And we see in places like 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is not slow like some people consider slowness, but He waits until all the elect are saved. And so God is patient. Working through His people so that those He has chosen will come to saving faith prior to the judgment that has been established. And so the Spirit who raised Jesus empowers us to bear witness in a faithless place. Thirdly, those who persecute the faithful will be punished. That's the other part of this that is important for us to recall. It is meant to comfort us in the midst of suffering and persecution. Again, Peter has addressed their calling through the experiences of Noah, but now here comes the great comfort that those who disobeyed in Noah's day are now imprisoned. You see, when you're suffering, it looks like evil is one. When you're suffering, it looks like the evil people are triumphant and victorious upon you or over you. wants to remind them that the many who persecuted Noah are now imprisoned. They're not free. They're not enjoying eternal life. But they're sitting awaiting judgment. We see, uh, as Peter would say in his second letter, in the second chapter, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. They experienced earthly judgment through the flood as God blotted them out. That's hard to read. It's hard to say. Nevertheless, the Gospel makes no sense apart from that context. If there's nothing and no one to be saved from, then why should I be saved? So they experienced that earthly judgment. They are now being held in prison for their eternal judgment that was to, as sure to come as the flood was. And so we're to understand that the original audience was being per, who was being persecuted, they were to know and, and rest in the sure knowledge that they would, that the persecutors would experience God's faithful judgment too if they did not repent. Remember, they're bearing witness. Some will come to faith, but many will not. And God will bring them to eternal judgment. The same is true for us in our faithless place 
that as we bear witness, God brings many into His people, but there are some that won't come, but God will bring judgment upon them in due time. So we need not fear that they will win, that they will overcome. Though they may kill us, it doesn't mean we've lost. So in the midst of Christ's triumph, what we see here is a demonstration of the patient mercy of God and the righteous judgment of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus preaches the Gospel through His people, even to those who persecute them. This Jesus works to preserve His people even as He brings the elect to faith. And so patient mercy on display. But we see here the flood. We see the prison. We see the judgment to come uh, that, that is certain. We see that He will punish unrepentant persecutors of His people. We see His righteous judgment. So brothers and sisters, take heart when you suffer for doing good. Take heart for making Jesus known in a faithless place. Take heart. It is not in vain. You will be preserved. You will be vindicated. Jesus will be praised. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would give us a a greater confidence in the Gospel. A greater understanding that it is indeed the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile, so that we would not be ashamed of the Gospel. But we would be confident in the Gospel. And confident in the Gospel, we would be faithful in speaking the Gospel to people. Help us also to have a, a great confidence in the reality of judgment. even as we want people to be saved. Help us to remember You're just as well as merciful. That You have declared that You will not let the guilty go unpunished. And that You will deal with those who are unfair to us. That we don't have to be the ones to bear the sword. Father, as we think of these two things, help us to grow in humility. That our salvation is a gift. It's not something we earned. That we have found favor in Your sight even though we were sinners. Help us to grow in humility, Father, as we consider what we have deserved. Help us to grow in joy as we consider the greatness of what we received so that we can live faithful lives in this faithless place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.